High Crimes in History is supported by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities, such as host-read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. This is how easy it was for us to find a sponsorship. We signed up and browsed their marketplace when there were dozens of sponsors, ranging from big-name products to small mom-and-pop startups. We chose one that we liked, set our rate for a mid-roll ad, wrote a short proposal, and like that, our proposal was sent. There was no middle man, and it took us less than 10 minutes. That's how easy Podcorn is to use. So if you're a podcast, big or small, you can find sponsors for your episodes that are right for you. Sign up to Podcorn to start browsing sponsorship opportunities by clicking the link in our show notes. That's podcorn.com. Hey guys, a couple things before we begin. First is that this is uh, one in a two-part series on the gunfight at the OK Corral, something that uh, I didn't intend to be a two-parter, but as usual, I tried to write them in a way where you can just kind of jump into the middle of it. So this one is all about the gunfight, the part that you maybe have heard something about, and the next part will actually be about something that you probably haven't, the murder trial that occurred afterwards. So I hope you enjoy that. Second, I know that I typically try not to do anything that could be um, history channeled, for lack of a better term, and I know, like, the gunfight at the OK Corral is totally that. But as you know, I like to take on these every once in a while to dispel some of the historical myths, and in this case, the gunfight has a lot of those. You know, Chief being who the good guys were. So I hope you enjoy this special episode of High Crimes in History. Today's episode is based on the work Murder in Tombstone, The Forgotten Trial of Wyatt Earp by Stephen Lubit. You ever notice how Hollywood films always have these climactic battles, these shootouts or punch-outs between good guys, bad guys, everything gets blown up, and then we never really see the aftermath? It's just, everyone celebrates, Chewie gets a medal, roll credits. Or, like, maybe it's addressed or hinted at. I think modern superhero films are starting to play like this more. I'm thinking of, like, the end of The Avengers, the beginning of Batman vs. Superman, Moments where they take a few minutes to show the destruction caused by a superhero battle. But those are exceptions, and they're barely a blip in the screen time. They're basically there to say, you see, there's a human element to these battles, look at the destruction they've caused. And then they proceed through another two and a half hours more of destruction. Kind of undercuts whatever theme you're trying to build, when it's only 1% of your runtime. Like... Imagine if we actually took the time to show the impact on screen, in the actual time of events. Like, forgive me if this is callous, but I think of something like the impact that 9-11 had. I mean, if you were alive, you remember that day vividly. We all do. But I mean, like, think about the years afterwards. The anxiety and the anger. The bills, the wars, the spying how every foreign policy decision is still made through the lens of 9-11. So if that's the impact of a single catastrophe, again, sorry if this seems crass, 
But what is it like in every Marvel film when city-leveling catastrophes happen every few months? Think about it. Why the hell does anyone even live in New York City or Gotham or Metropolis in these films? Like, everybody would be in Kansas after the second alien invasion. And yeah, I get it. It's fiction. It's Hollywood. We don't want every romance to be Netflix's marriage story. Not every science fiction show has to explain every working technology like it's The Martian. But my point is that stories are not made in a bubble. They have an introduction and a conclusion that frame how we perceive everything, from the events to the characters. A Marvel film wouldn't be much fun if it was 5% action set piece, 95% cleanup, lawsuits, funerals, legislation, debates, and a raw public take. But realistically, if we want a complete picture, that's what it should look like. Why do I bring this up? Because history functions the exact same way. It's a narrative. When a historian sits down and writes a book, where he places the introduction and conclusion can really color your perception on the characters and events that make up human history. It's why historians argue whether World War II started in 1939 with Germany's invasion of Poland, or whether it was 1937 when war began between Japan and China. Or some even argue all the way back to 1914 with the assassination of Franz Ferdinand because the events of World War I are so tied to World War II that maybe it's just one big continuous war with a decade of peace. My point is, where we place that introduction and conclusion sometimes matters the most when studying history. Case in point, take some American heroes. The Earp brothers, Wyatt, Virgil, and Morgan, and their friend Doc Holliday. They're probably the most famous lawmen of the American West. They're the lawmen that engaged in a shootout on October 26th, 1881, in Tombstone, Arizona. A shootout that became known as the gunfight at the O.K. Corral. It's the perfect representation of the Wild West. A gang of outlaws, many related by blood, taking on the law after a feud had developed. 30 shots in 30 seconds, with both sides only 6 feet apart, in a narrow alley, crowds watching. In the narrative most people know, it's a high-noon, quick-draw shootout. The lawmen kill three of the outlaws, the other escapes, and the lawmen win the day. Everyone celebrates, roll on snare drum, curtains. But that's like watching an action film and not covering the aftermath. You don't really see the trauma. You don't see the public's anger. You don't hear the witnesses who testify that this wasn't a fair fight, that this was manslaughter. You don't see the heroes put on trial for murder. And we should. We should examine the OK Corral. Not just the shootout, but the whole narrative. Feud, murder trial, the works. Because that's the part no one wants to talk about. Tradition has framed the shootout between good and evil, lawful and lawless, black and white. The reality is much different. Because the reality is that these American heroes weren't heroes at all. They were killers who were put on trial for their murder of three men who, while certainly not good men by any standard, were shot down in cold blood. I'm Trevor Rhodes, and this is High Crimes in History.
It's one of those interesting tidbits of history you never really think of, but you know the quick holster? That leather holster cowboys always keep their revolvers in? Never existed. Hollywood invention. And when you think about it, it's not really that surprising. Imagine how often your gun would fall out when running or riding horseback. Even the gun belt that strapped it down was rare. I mean, why would you wear it? In the American West, you hid your gun in your waistband or your pocket. That way, no one knew if you were packing. And everyone was packing. It was less of a question whether you owned a gun, and more whether you had it on your person that very instant. Many towns outlawed firearms or had strict gun control ordinances. So did many establishments where shootouts occurred, such as saloons. So you didn't want people to see you had a weapon on yourself. You shoved it in a pocket, or your waistcoat, or your trousers. But if violence started to become a possible reality, the first move you made was for your gun. Not to shoot, but to hold, to show you meant business. As Stephen Lubitz states in the opening chapter of his book, quote, When it came to gunfights, displaying your weapon was the first move, not the last, of anyone who was seriously interested in surviving. End quote. But shooting first? That was another story, especially if the other party was unarmed. So the public was grateful when on October 30th, 1881, Ike Clanton, the only survivor of the OK Corral shootout, who had fought the Earp brothers, filed first-degree murder charges against the Earps in Doc Holliday. He alleged that they engaged in premeditated murder with malice aforethought, and the evidence was in his favor. But who were the Earps? Virgil Earp, along with his brothers Wyatt and James, had long been lawmen in the West. Virgil had served in the Union Army, with the police force in Abilene, Kansas, and as the town constable in Prescott, Arizona. Wyatt Earp had been part of the Wichita police and the assistant city marshal of Dodge City. James had served in the Union Army and as a deputy marshal in Dodge City. His brother Morgan had only recently started as a lawman in the past year. The four brothers had moved to Tombstone, Arizona in 1879 to strike up a fortune in silver mining. Wyatt had brought along Doc Holliday, a drunk and a gambler with a penchant for troublemaking. The two had become fast friends in Dodge City after Holliday saved Wyatt's life, and although Virgil wasn't too keen on his inclusion, he let him tag along anyways. Tombstone was your classic Wild West boomtown, cut off from civilization with no rail or telegraph lines running to it. Fresh food and vegetables were non-existent. It was the kind of place a man could remake himself, take multiple occupations. He could be a merchant by day, a gambler by night, and a miner by trade. It was almost the perfect place for bad men, the term for men who broke the law, or at least bent it until it was unrecognizable. Law enforcement existed, but jurisdiction was, let's just say it was pretty spotty. There were few federal marshals in the Arizona Territory, and they had to cover extremely large spaces. I mean, there were times that like three U.S. marshals covered the entire state's boundaries of Arizona today. They could hire additional help, but it just gives you an idea of how hard it would be to track down a lawbreaker from one side of the territory to the other. They were rarely in town unless an investigation brought them there. Therefore, it was up to the county sheriff and city police to keep the peace. 
But, as we've noted in previous episodes, they could be prone to corruption, or at least outbursts of violence. They were Western men, after all, and like every other man in the West, they were young, drunk, horny, and carrying a firearm. You do the math. As Clara Brown, a journalist in Tombstone, made clear in her writings, quote, When saloons are thronged all night with excited and armed men, bloodshed must need ensue occasionally, end quote. That's far from saying that Tombstone was lawless. The West was not like some sort of Darwinian landscape kill-or-be-killed thing. But it's important to understand two pieces. One, that state justice has to be swift and severe in order to deter a crime. But in Tombstone, it's hard to be swift when official legal law enforcement is often far away or already busy or inebriated or untrustworthy. So two, that means that often the people took the law into their own hands. We talked about that last time, how vigilantes meted out justice through mock court and extra-legal killings. Check out the episode Death Assigned a Contract if you want a little bit more about that. And I'm not saying that it was just by modern standards, not in the slightest, but my point is it was the best stand-in for justice that many western towns could hope for. George Parsons, one of the residents of Tombstone, described it thusly in his journal, quote, I believe in killing such men as one would a wild animal. The law must be carried out by the citizens, or should be, when it falls in its performance as it has lately done, end quote. But, and this is important, it doesn't mean an extra-legal killing wasn't still legally a murder. If a man pulled a gun and shot someone else, if it didn't look like it was for self-defense, then that man would be tried in court and often found guilty and executed, as it was a capital punishment in Arizona. Now, once the Earps made it to Tombstone, they staked their mining claims and speculated, selling off or leasing their claims rather than working them themselves. They all took up different occupations in addition to the mines. James worked as a bartender and dealer, but Virgil, Wyatt, and Morgan all took up employment as stagecoach shotgun riders, guards on Wells Fargo's stagecoach shipments that ran to Benson and Tucson. It's actually where the term riding shotgun, or like, I'm taking shotgun, or the shotgun seat comes from. The guard rode up in front with the driver, shotgun in hand, in case any would-be robbers tried to accost the shipment. Virgil was also made a deputy U.S. marshal, and Wyatt was made a deputy sheriff. Although they were two different jurisdictions, they also were the only federal and county authorities in Tombstone, which meant that they got to keep the percentage of tax collections they made all to themselves. That didn't make them very popular with the locals. By 1881, two years after they arrived, Tombstone had swelled to 6,000 people. Businessmen from families such as the Hursts and the Goldwaters passed through, and East Coast investments threw money into prospecting. These business leaders wanted stability above all else, as they needed to keep investors pouring money into the mines. They especially feared a descent into lawlessness, a descent that the cowboys brought with them when they burst onto the stage in July of 1881. The cowboys was both their name and their occupation. They were a band of bad men, quote, rootless ex-cowhands and saddle tramps who gravitated toward the small towns of southeastern Arizona, attracted to the climate and the relative lack of law enforcement on either side of the Mexican border, end quote. 
They were Confederate veterans from Texas, with a traditional dislike of authority, like Texans. Like many bad men, they also weren't always bad, only occasionally. Most of the time, they were ranchers, sporadically crossing the border into Mexico and stealing some cattle. And to be honest, most of the Arizona people didn't care. They were just glad to have some fresh beef. But in July, a band of several dozen cowboys attacked a group of Mexican merchants, killing four and robbing the rest. Arizona's acting governor began a response, but on August 13, 1881, Mexican soldiers killed five of the suspects in Guadalupe Canyon and moved troops into the area, forcing the cowboys to start stealing on the Arizona side of the border. Tombstone citizens were fearful as they quickly became the potential targets. Parsons recounted in his journal, quote, Nick, who shares a cabin with me, had quite an adventure today with a cowboy on the Charleston Road three or four miles out. The fellow rode up to Nick, who was on his good horse, and, leveling a six-shooter at him, ordered him to dismount and hand over his horse. Nick dismounted, and while in the act of handing over the bridle reins, seized the fellow's revolver, and in the struggle, it was discharged, causing the horses to jump apart. When Nick ran to his horse, jumped on him, and was off like a flash while the cowboy fired two shots at him. End quote. He followed that entry by stating, quote, By it understood in this journal, cowboy is a rustler at times, and a rustler is a synonym for desperado, bandit, outlaw, and horse thief. End quote. And that's a good set of insults, but in my opinion, the best one was coined by the Arizona Weekly Star, who called them a scab on the body politic. Use that one next time you're in an argument. So far, so Western. Rustic Boomtown has some but little law enforcement. Unorganized groups of outlaws are threatening the town. But that's just the background to the real problem. Rising tensions between the Earps and a group of cowboy affiliates, the McLory brothers and the Clantons. You see, the Clantons were a family in the town of nearby Charleston who participated in some of these cowboy raids. They included Newman Old Man Clanton, Ike, Billy, and Finn. They're often portrayed as some masterminds to the cowboys. They're not. At best, the cowboys sometimes did business at the Clantons' ranch. They were participants, but nothing close to leaders. The McLory brothers weren't even cowboys. They were ranchers who bought cattle from herders, and sometimes that cattle was stolen. Most ranchers turned a blind eye to buying stolen cattle, either out of fear or out of greed. The McLory brothers were the latter. So throughout the couple years before the OK Corral shootout, these two sets of families, the Clantons and the McLories, were familiar faces in Tombstone, and they were generally considered bad men at best, outlaws at worst. They both are the antagonists of the Earps in that fateful showdown at the Yoke Corral. Seems pretty clear thus far. But let's complicate the narrative, because we need to understand both the politics of the different branches of law enforcement in Tombstone and the personal feuds that the Earps had with many important players in this shootout. Once we do, all of a sudden, this whole black and white business is going to get a lot grayer. Let's start with Johnny Behan. Cochise County's sheriff. He was fairly lax in tracking down stagecoach robbers, including the cowboys. He was constantly accused by Tombstone citizens of turning a blind eye to their affairs because he needed support of the ranchers 
who tended to be Democrat, the party platform Behan ran on. Without their support, he wouldn't be sheriff anymore. Now compare that to the Earps, who were uncompromising on the law and Republican. Lubick gives two short examples of their stubbornness in his book. Quote, Virgil once arrested Mayor Clum for fast riding on the Tombstone streets. Wyatt managed to do him one better, threatening to arrest a judge in his own courtroom. End quote. So when the Earps showed up at the McLaurie's property in the summer of 1880 as backup for Army Lieutenant J.H. Hurst, you can imagine they weren't going to be as lax like Behan was. Hurst was looking for six mules stolen from the U.S. Army Fort Camp Rucker, and was at the ranch on a tip that they were at the McLaurie's. They found the cattle, and ordered them to return the mules the next day or be arrested. The mules were never delivered. Frank McClory was charged with hiding the mules, a fact he disputed, calling Wyatt Earp out in the local paper as, quote, a coward, a vagabond, a rascal, and a malicious liar, end quote. This was the first encounter that the Earps had with the McClory's, but it won't be the last. Another major player in the OK Corral shootout is Doc Holliday. He's a wild card for the Earps, a drunk and a gambler. One citizen noted, quote, he was bad when sober and worse when drunk, end quote. Pretty much everyone except Wyatt Earp agreed on this fact, and it was well proven less than a month after he got into town when he got into an argument with a saloon owner on October 10th, 1880. The saloon owner ordered Holiday out of the saloon and refused to return his pistol. Most saloons force the patrons to deposit their pistols with the bartender to avoid any shootouts over, like, cards or dames. He probably didn't want to return it because Holiday was known to be a violent man. He didn't have to wait long to prove that. Lubit writes, quote, Not one to suffer slights in silence, Doc returned after only a few minutes, having armed himself with a self-cocking double-action revolver. Standing no more than ten feet from Joyce, Doc fired the first of several shots, at which point the saloon owner jumped for the assailant and struck him over the head with a six-shooter, felling him to the floor and lighting on top of him. More shots were fired, both by Holiday and bartender Gus Williams, until Fred White succeeded in separating the combatants. When the smoke cleared, Joyce had suffered a serious shot through the hand, and William Parker, another partner at the Oriental, had been shot in the left foot. End quote. Holiday was charged with assault with a deadly weapon, but pled guilty to assault and battery and got off with only a fine of $20. In a separate incident, two weeks later, on October 28th, a cowboy killed a man in Tombstone and was charged with murder but was exonerated. Once released, he fled town and immediately went on a shooting spree. Together, these two incidents sparked public outcry of the violence in Tombstone. The response was similar to many in towns around the West, a public ordinance law that prohibited the public from carrying any firearm, concealed or otherwise, in the city limits, an important law that would come up in the shootout. Furthermore, the November 2nd election for Pima County Sheriff was contentious, with voter fraud on both sides, but especially from the Democrats, who in one precinct pulled in almost exactly 103 votes for every single Democratic candidate but only one for the Republican. That vote was a Texas cowboy who stated, quote, well, I wanted to show these fellows that there wasn't any intimidation at this precinct, end quote. 
Huh, that's not suspicious. And who was in charge of counting and bringing the ballots in from various precincts to Tombstone? Oh, why, the Cowboys. Wyatt resigned in disgust as Deputy County Sheriff, and Johnny Behan became his replacement. That's key, because it meant that a potential sympathizer for the Cowboys was now sharing jurisdiction with Virgil, the judicial hardliner. Then, in another election on February 10th, 1881, Behan was elected the first sheriff of Cochise County. Instead of appointing Wyatt, the runner-up, as an undersheriff, he appointed Harry Woods, another Democrat, which understandably ticked Wyatt off as a Republican. But, Wyatt got the last laugh. In the late spring of 1881, Behan's longtime lover, Josephine Sarah Marcus, known by citizens as, quote, the belle of the honky-tonks and the pretty's dame in Tombstone, end quote, ended up cheating on Behan and leaving him, for all people, Wyatt. I know, like, what a drama. But this is important, because it helps us understand, 140 years later, that this wasn't a simple good guy, bad guy shootout. There was a lot of bad blood between the Earps and Johnny Behan, who was supposed to be part of their cohort of law enforcement. Instead, they didn't meet eye to eye on anything. Politics, enforcement of the law, their opinions on the Cowboys, and now on Josephine. These guys, who were supposed to be on the same side, hated each other. So it only makes sense how both interact that fateful day behind the OK Corral. The final catalyst for the shootout came on March 15, 1881, when a band of cowboys attacked the Tombstone Benson stagecoach, killing two people and stealing $26,000 in silver. The Earps tracked down one outlaw who confessed and handed him off to Johnny Behan to be locked in the jail. But when they came back from searching for the perpetrators empty-handed a week later, the cowboy had conveniently escaped through an unlocked jail door that was left unattended. To add insult to injury, Sheriff Behan paid everyone for their investigative work except the Earps, claiming they weren't actually deputized for the investigation, which was legally BS, not to mention the Earps had done the heavy lifting and were the only ones to come away with any lead at all. And then, on rumor, Behan arrested Doc Holliday, the Earps' friend, for the murders. When he was taken to court, the evidence was found to be a complete fabrication as the only person who testified against Doc was his girlfriend after she got into a fight with him, became drunk, and then was convinced to sign an affidavit charging him with murder. And who convinced her to sign it? Why, Johnny Behan. Once sober, she recanted her testimony, and Holiday's alibi was confirmed by several witnesses, but it goes to show just how deep the feud between Behan and the Earps had gotten that Behan was targeting Holiday, Wyatt's best friend. Wyatt, intent on challenging Behan in the next election, approached one of the cowboys, Ike Clanton, and sealed a deal to pay him the reward from Wells Fargo if he would lure the cowboys who had attacked the Tombstone Benson stagecoach into an ambush and take them, dead or alive. On June 7th, Ike confirmed the deal. But before Ike could get to the perpetrators of the Benson robbery, they were killed in a series of murders by other cowboys. Finally, in mid-September, Behan's deputy sheriff, Frank Stilwell, was arrested by the Earps for a stagecoach robbery that had occurred on September 8th, and they had some evidence to prove it, eyewitness testimony and boot print tracks that were confirmed to be the deputies. 
but when it came up in court, the charges were dismissed as too circumstantial. So, with all of this bad blood between the Earps and Holiday on one side, and the Cowboys and sympathizer Johnny Behan on the other, the time had come for a final confrontation. It started innocuously enough, at least as innocuous as it can get in the West. On October 25th, Ike Clanton and Tom McClory rode into Tombstone and entered the Alhambra Saloon shortly after midnight. Doc Holliday was at the bar. This may not have been a chance meeting. Ike was afraid that he'd be outed as a snitch after confirming the deal with Wyatt to ambush the stagecoach robbers. There's evidence from later interviews in life that Wyatt Earp had summoned Holiday back to town to assuage those fears, or to intimidate Ike into silence. But, circumstantial or not, their chance greeting soon devolved into insults. Ike accused Holiday of outing Ike's deal. Holiday flew back with a stream of expletives, calling Ike a damned liar, a son of a bitch of a cowboy, and finally, he challenged him, saying, quote, You son of a bitch, if you ain't healed, meaning armed, go heal yourself. End quote. Morgan Earp, also at the Alhambra as a deputy, separated the two and got them both to leave. Ike found and confronted Wyatt on the street, stating, quote, He would have a man-to-man, to which Wyatt replied, I would fight no one if I could get away with it because there was no money in it. End quote. Somehow, Wyatt convinced them to play a game of poker with the Earps, Johnny Behan, and Tom McLaurie for five hours late into the night. We don't know what happened at that table, but Ike continued his insults after the game ended, stating, quote, That damned son of a bitch has got to fight, meaning Holiday, and threatening Virgil, You may have to fight before you know it. End quote. Virgil and Wyatt went home to sleep, but Ike roamed through the night and into the morning on the street carrying a gun, and cursing the Earps and Holiday. Perhaps the worst was when he told a bartender, quote, as soon as the Earps and Doc Holiday showed themselves on the street, the ball would open and they would have to fight, end quote. By mid-morning, six people had come to the Earps to report Ike's threats. Holiday was also up after his girlfriend came and stated, quote, Ike Clanton was here looking for you, and he had a rifle with him. Doc replied, if God will let me live long enough, Ike will see me. End quote. Close to noon, Wyatt, Virgil, and Morgan all met with Ike near Allen Street. Ike was illegally carrying a firearm. Remember, it was against the law to have them in the city limits. And they grabbed his rifle and clubbed him to the ground. They dragged him, bleeding and bruised, to the courtroom and charged him with carrying firearms in the city. While true, it was a rule that was seldom enforced. In fact, the mayor himself had walked by moments before the Earps had seized Clanton and cheerfully had asked, Hello, Ike. Any new war? So obviously this was more of a pretense to actually arrest Ike than anything else. While they waited for the judge, Ike continued to curse the Earps. Finally, Wyatt exploded and shot back, quote, You damned dirty cow thief. If you are anxious to make a fight, I will go anywhere on earth to make a fight with you. End quote. Clanton replied, quote, Fight is my racket, and all I want is four feet of ground. If you fellows had been a second later, I would have furnished a coroner's inquest for the town. End quote. The men were immediately separated, and Clanton was fined $25 by the judge. He deposited his firearms and was released. Okay, so let's step back 
a second before we continue, because I want to make something clear. So far, it's been over 30 minutes of narrative, and I've explained a lot behind how we got to this point. It's clear that there's been a hell of a feud boiling between the Cowboys and the Earps. We've talked a lot about how violence works in the West, how most of these guys are hot-tempered and drunk, and it's pretty clear Ike and possibly why it was at this point. But so far, while not exactly the perfect lawful protagonists, the Earps have obviously been the good guys in the story. And this is how it's traditionally portrayed. Ike went overboard, Wyatt's obviously upset, but the Earps are still the lawful good guys. So pay attention to the next few minutes, because it's going to change the way you view this whole case forever. As Wyatt leaves the courthouse, fuming, he stumbles into Tom McClory, one of Ike's friends. Bystanders confirm Tom was not armed or threatening. So, it raised the eyebrows of everyone watching when, unprovoked, Wyatt slapped Tom with one hand, and Tom stumbled. He pursued Tom, pulling out his revolver with the other hand, demanding, Are you healed or not? Tom backed away, and Wyatt clubbed Tom multiple times in the head and the shoulder, beating him to the ground. As Wyatt stood over him, he muttered, I could kill this son of a bitch. Right about this moment, Billy Clanton and Frank McLory rode into town, carrying Winchesters in their horses' holsters and six-shooters on their persons, again, in violation of the law, although many people violated it. They heard minutes later of both Ike and Tom's treatment. They found Ike loading gun belts, and all four brothers, Clanton's and McLory's, moved to the OK Corral, grabbing their horses to leave town before there was trouble. Meanwhile, the Earps continued to hear from citizens that the Cowboys meant trouble, although by this point it was likely that these were witnesses who had only heard the earlier encounters. In response, Virgil went to the Wells Fargo's office and grabbed a short-barreled shotgun. Now you might be asking, where was Johnny Behan this whole time? Well, he was getting a shave. But once he heard of the commotion, Behan told the barber to finish quickly. He intended to disarm both sides. As he left, he encountered Virgil. Their stories conflict, but the result was Behan agreed he would find the cowboys alone to talk to them. But the cowboys had moved from the corral through an alley with their horses. Exactly why isn't clear. Pro-ERP riders think it was to stake out Doc Holliday, but more likely they were trying to either leave town or get out of the vision of the ERPs to talk and decide whether to fight or to run. That's where Behan found them, joined by Billy Claiborne, another cowboy. Behan asked twice for their guns, but they refused, with Frank stating, quote, Without those other people, the Earps, being disarmed, he was going to keep his gun, end quote. Behan patted down Ike and found no weapon. Tom opened his coat to show Behan he had nothing as well. Billy and Frank were obviously armed with six shooters, but both claimed they were leaving town. Claiborne stated he was not involved, so Behan ignored him. He told them that he was going to, quote, disarm the other party, end quote, and he went to find the Earps. He later stated, quote, I considered the Clanton party under arrest, but I doubt whether they considered themselves under arrest or not after I turned to meet the other party, end quote. This had all taken about 20 minutes. Back with the Earps, Doc Holliday suddenly showed up, unsolicited, carrying a walking stick. 
He volunteered to help, but Wyatt said no, stating, This is our fight. Doc bristled, shouting, That's a hell of a thing for you to say to me. Virgil stepped in, handing his shotgun to Holiday to conceal under his coat and taking the walking stick with him. A citizen informed them that the cowboys were no longer at the OK Corral, but were now on Fremont Street. Lubit writes, quote, That was the provocation Virgil decided he would not ignore, and he signaled the others that it was time to go to work. Ironically, the cowboys had no reason to know that leaving the corral violated Virgil's unspoken ultimatum. They might even have thought that their retreat down the alley could avoid a confrontation, but instead, it triggered everything that followed. End quote. The Earps and Holiday began walking towards Fremont and turned left down the alley. They could see the McLaurys and the Clantons. Lubit states dozens of people lined the streets and windows, watching. Virgil, with the walking stick and pistol in his waistband, Wyatt and Morgan with the revolvers out and in hand, Doc attempting to conceal the shotgun but the wind blowing his coat open so everyone could see it. Johnny Behan noticed them and ran frantically towards them, waving his hands. Quote, I am the sheriff of this county, and I am not going to allow any trouble if I can help it. End quote. They ignored him, brushing past. He turned and shouted, For God's sake, don't go down there, or you will get murdered. But then the accounts differ. Wyatt and Virgil believed that they heard, I have disarmed them all. But Behan later claimed that he stated, I was there for the purpose of arresting and disarming them. For the Earps, that meant that they believed the Clantons and the McLaurys weren't armed. So they stiffened when they saw Billy and Frank had six shooters on their person, although not in their hand. Earp's party stopped within ten feet of the cowboys. Billy Claiborne rushed away. Everyone else stood their ground. The Earps stared down the cowboys. Lubit writes, quote, The Earps relied on years of experience as they faced the Clantons and McLaurys, surely expecting that the four men could be bullied into submission. Similar tactics had worked with countless Texans in Kansas, and they had worked equally well during the Earps' two years in Tombstone. The cowboys appeared edgy and frightened, a natural response given the Earps' well-deserved reputation for rough justice. Ike and Tom, recalling their pistol whippings earlier in the day, did not want to be beaten again. The four men were cornered, but there was no way to tell how they would react. But a sharp movement can easily be misunderstood in a tense situation, and the Earps were not inclined that day to give anyone the benefit of the doubt. End quote. Virgil raised the walking stick and shouted, Boys, throw up your hands, I want your guns. In the same moment, someone in the Earp party yelled, You sons of bitches, you have been looking for a fight. Tom threw his coat open and stated, I ain't got no arms. And Billy Clanton said at the same time, or in the same moment, I do not want to fight, and held out his hands to show he was unarmed. Frank made a motion with his hand. Virgil yelled, Hold! I don't want that! As Billy began to say, I ain't got no arms, the first shots went off. Two shots came together in quick succession from at least one Earp, followed by between two to six more shots from the Earp party. Frank and Billy drew their weapons. There was a pause, and then both sides began firing. Wyatt's first shot struck Frank 
in the right side of his belly. Another shot clipped Billy's right wrist. Morgan, standing askance, was struck in the right shoulder, the bullet passing through to the other shoulder and chipping a vertebra on its exit. Morgan Earp responded by shoving his gun into Billy's breast, less than a foot away and firing. Billy Clanton slid against a window, switching hands and firing, hitting Virgil in the leg as he slid down. Frank stood in the middle of the street, shooting. Tom went for the Winchester on the horse's saddle. Doc Holliday swiveled around and shot him under the right arm with a buckshot from his shotgun. Tom fell with a dozen buckshot in his right side. Ike panicked, running towards Wyatt, grabbing him. Wyatt shoved him, shouting, The fight has commenced. Go to your fighting or get away. Ike ran into a nearby house. Frank hid behind his horse, leading him across the street as the Earps continued firing. Doc Holliday stepped forward and blocked Frank's path. Frank lifted his gun and shouted, I've got you now. Doc threw away the shotgun and drew his nickel-plated pistol and stared him down. Blaze away. You're a daisy if you have. Frank's shot grazed Doc's hip. Holiday, along with Morgan Earp, both fired at the same time, striking Frank in the head, right below the right ear and another in the stomach. His body crumpled to the dusty ground. Thirty seconds. Thirty shots. It was over. Frank McLaurie was dead. Tom McLaurie and Billy Clanton were on the verge of death. Virgil and Morgan were wounded. Billy and Tom were taken to a nearby house, where they died an hour later. Virgil and Morgan were taken by wagon to their home. Wyatt and Doc stayed at the scene. Johnny Behan, brimming with rage, approached. He said, quote, Wyatt, I am arresting you for murder. End quote. Wyatt, stunned, shot back, quote, I won't be arrested. You deceived me, Johnny. You told me they were not armed. I won't be arrested, but I am here to answer what I have done. I'm not going to leave town. End quote. One of the crowd piped up and said, quote, There is no hurry in arresting this man. He done just right in killing them, and the people will uphold them. Wyatt replied, You bet we did right. We had to do it. And he threw us, Johnny. You told us they were disarmed. End quote. Behan backed down. Vigilantes flooded the streets in case of a cowboy raid. When Ike was found, they placed him in a protective custody in case the crowd went for a lynching. The newspapers crowed in favor of the Earps. They had all the public support. So it seems all's well that ends well. Except it hadn't ended. There still needed to be an investigation. And that was the job for the coroner. Tombstone's coroner came to the scene before the bodies were moved. After examining the bodies, he found revolvers on Frank and Billy, but nothing, not even ammunition, on Tom. They were buried the following day to a crowd of 2,000, a third of the citizens of Tombstone. The day after the funeral, the coroner began his formal inquest. By Arizona law, anyone who had been killed, quote, in such circumstances as afford a reasonable ground to suspect that his death has been occasioned by the act of another by criminal means, end quote, had to first be investigated by the coroner. This didn't just include how they physically died— but also the events surrounding it. It was the equivalency of a modern-day full-crime scene investigation, including eyewitness interviews. The coroner assembled ten jurors 
for the hearing of the interviews, and he presided effectively as the primary interrogator. He called nine witnesses, including Ike Clanton and Johnny Behan. Behan provided the opening explosive testimony when he stated that Tom and Billy had been in the midst of surrendering when the shooting began. As Lubit put it, quote, Behan was saying that the Earp shot down men who were trying their best to surrender, end quote. That wouldn't be a shootout. That would be manslaughter at best, murder at worst. His damning testimony continued, quote, Before leaving the stand, Behan made another new and extremely important claim that would influence both the inquest and the criminal case that followed. Asked who started the firing, he said, now in his words, I can't say who fired the first shot. It appears to me that it was fired from a nickel-plated pistol. There were two shots very close together. I know that the nickel-plated pistol was on the side of the Earps. I won't say which one of the Earp crowd fired it. End quote. There is only one man in Tombstone with a nickel-plated pistol. It was Doc Holliday. Behan was claiming that Holliday had fired the first shot as Tom and Billy were surrendering. Ike backed this claim up, as did Billy Claiborne. Of course, none of them were neutral witnesses. As we've all seen, all of them had some sort of feud with the Earps and wanted to see them on trial for murder. But two neutral witnesses provided even more damning details. Housewife Martha King stated she heard as the Earps and Holiday had walked past the butcher shop on Fremont Street towards the alley before the shooting that, quote, she heard one of the Earps say, let them have it, to which Doc Holliday replied, all right, end quote. And laundryman P.H. Fellahy overheard the discussion between Virgil and Johnny Behan before Behan had gone to the corral to try and disarm the cowboys. He stated, quote, The marshal, Virgil Earp, said, Those men have made their threats. I will not arrest them, but will kill them on sight. End quote. All of a sudden, the tables had turned. Lubit writes, quote, Eight witnesses had charged the Earps with homicide of some degree, and no one tested unequivocally in their defense. End quote. Five witnesses had given evidence that the Earps and Holiday never intended to disarm the cowboys when they walked down that alleyway. They intended to murder them, and they had fired the first shot as two of the cowboys were surrendering, and two of them were armed, the other two didn't have their guns out, and it wasn't even clear if they had even made a move towards them. The coroner's verdict was such. Quote, William Clanton, Frank, and Thomas McClory came to their deaths in the town of Tombstone on October 26, 1881, from the effects of pistol and gunshot wounds inflicted by Virgil Earp, Morgan Earp, Wyatt Earp, and one Holiday, commonly called Doc Holiday. End quote. It made no mention of whether a criminal action had been committed, but it hadn't exonerated the Earps either. And besides, public opinion had sharply turned against them. So, on October 30th, 1881, when Ike Clanton filed first-degree murder charges against the Earps and Holiday, the public was divided. As Clara Brown stated in her journal a week later, quote, You may meet one man who will support the Earps, 
and declare that there is no other course possible to save their own lives, and the next man is just as likely to assert that there is no occasion whatever for bloodshed, and that this will be a warm place for the Earps hereafter. End quote. The Earps were no longer the good guys of this story. They were the criminals. And as we'll see, there's good evidence at trial to convict them as murderers. High Crimes in History is produced, written, and edited by Trevor and Katie Rhodes. Music by Nick Wright. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have recommendations for show topics or comments about the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or find us at our website at highcrimesandhistory.com.